All right. So what do you want to talk about? Like, how do you want to get started? I'd mentioned this to you before, but I'm, I'm really interested in hearing your, uh, your pitch for event sourcing. So I've, I've gotten, I don't know if you're up, up for that, but I've gotten kind of the, I follow people on Twitter who are talking about it and it's clearly like, I don't want to call it trendy, but it's clearly the things that a lot of the folks who are kind of more architecturally minded in my world who kind of like pull me forward, kicking and screaming. That's where a lot of their brains are these days. And I understand the basics of it, right? I understand it has to do something with, um, or I don't know if I said event storming or event sourcing, and you can tell me about the difference, but I know there's some level of every time something happens, there's an event and you can reconstruct the entire current state by playing through those all over again. But I mean, first of all, I'd love to hear the basics of it, but also I want to go back and forth. Like I'm building a, a SAS right now and I'm using a revisionable trait on my models to record everything that changes so that I can have this kind of history. So I want to hear like, is that the type of thing we're doing here? Or is that some other use case? Cause for me, it's just kind of, I've got this basics of it in my head and that's about it. Um, okay, cool. Well, the first thing I would say is there is a very distinct difference between event storming and event sourcing, right? Mm-hmm. So event storming is like brainstorming, but it's an event. Okay. So you're sitting there with your team, with you're sitting there with business experts, you're sitting there with whomever is relevant, and you're asking, okay, what are the events that are important to our business? So if your business is uh, ticket sales, so you might say having sold a ticket, uh, having added tickets to a cart, having walked away from the cart that had a ticket in it mm-hmm. and never purchasing a ticket, these events all might be important. And so you're, you're doing this kind of brainstorming exercise and it's a, the purpose is discoverability. The purpose is walking into a business and figuring out what they do in the fastest possible way, right? Because when you're a company that's brought into a project, you have to kind of adapt their knowledge as much as possible. So probably you probably do this too, where if you get into uh, a business deal with, with some company, you probably read up on their industry, yeah. learn how their industry works. So it's really discovering the things that matter to them, but doing it in a kind of a venti context just to give us some some pre-thinking in terms of what we're going to develop against. Yeah, I think the it's it's less even important than, than development and more important because uh, events tell us what you care about. So yeah. these are the things that happened that are important. So we can figure out pretty quickly what the company or the business – feels most strongly about, right? And so that's event storming. And um, I went to a really good workshop with Matthias Faros and we did that. Uh, and after that, my team and I, we kind of just arbitrarily choose opportunities to do event storming because we feel like we can see the problem from a new angle and yeah. learn more about it. Um, so that's really nice. But event sourcing is, um, you know, hopelessly close to, to the event storming as a word. And so everyone mixes them up all the time. You wouldn't <laughs> be the first, you won't be the last, uh, but that's super typical, but events sourcing, it's called event sourcing because your events are the source of all your truth. Mm-hmm. So, um, in order to build an event sourced application, you have to kind of know, okay, first of all, these are the events we, we care about and you start at the beginning and these are like features basically. So you might have an event you know, add product, add product added to cart mm-hmm. or basket or whatever the, the language is. And then you have an event product removed from cart. And then you, you know, have, uh, pay, you know, purchase completed or, or whatever arbitrary events you have. And these events are thrown by your domain model, right? So your application accepts user input. It banks a couple domain models together and those things spit out events. So in this case, uh, you have a product, which is a domain concept. And you have a cart, which is a domain concept. And so when you add a product to a cart, there are rules that determine what products can be added to a cart. It has to be uh, maybe one product per row. And if there's more than one product, I, I don't know. You can come up with any number of arbitrary rules. These are always happening. But the thing is, what happens is you're not worried about changing your huge PostgreSQL database, right? So usually you have, let's say, 100 tables in a reasonably sized app and those tables hold all kinds of data in a normalized form and you have unique IDs and you have foreign keys and foreign key constraints and that's how all your data kind of goes together Uh, but in event source system you have a big old stack of events so everything that you do that's meaningful is actually an event that's been fired Mm -hmm. every single meaningful thing in your system is the result of event firing and so if I fire a bunch of events, those events go back into the event store and they get stored there. And events are stored by um, like an, a type, 
which would might be, um, for example, product. You have a product entity. And so every change to that product that's made through an administrative system or who knows what uh, would fire a new event for that product. And so it might be product was added or um, ignore. I'm just not going to worry about naming too much here. Product was created. That sounds really crud-like, but we'll, we'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, product uh, price changed. Um, any number of these things. And so what happens is you don't have a table, a database table where you have called products with this ID, with this uh, name, with this price. Uh, you end up having a stack of events. And so when the when you need to kind of get that product object, you have to take that stack of events in the exact order they were fired and apply them. So the first event, it would be product was created. And so then you come back with a product that has the initial data that that product had when it was first created. Then you have product price was changed and then the price is updated. And after you run all of those events against your your product, you have the current most up-to-date version of the product. You know that because there's nowhere anybody could edit that product that is not through firing an event. So there's no products table. You can't just modify that data. You can't have a database level integration with some other company who's in here modifying the data. That that just doesn't exist. The funny thing about event sourcing, and and stop me if you you know want to interject a little bit, but people are always wondering if I pull back a list of products, does that mean I have to take all of these individual products and play back all of the events for each of these individual products? And this is the, this is the fun part about event sourcing. This is the part that I'm personally super passionate about. It's when you, um, separate your rights and your reads, right? The whole CQRS thing. Your rights are occurring through firing events, but your reads aren't reading back these events. Your reads aren't going through these events and seeing what's going on. Your reads are entirely something different. Uh, let's say I want a list of all the products on my site, right? Those products uh, are going to have to show the name, the price, um, I don't know, details about them, right? This is just a normal page that you might find on Amazon.com, right? Right. If you were to actually go through and replay all those events for Mm -hmm. the 50 products you might actually list on one page, that could be pretty crazy. Yeah, that was my first thought when you said that, so I'm, I'm excited about this part. Even if I'm not actually going to use event sourcing on a project, this is the, the the idea that is going to give me new freedoms in, in building apps. When an event fires, it's actually then being applied to a database table somewhere. Okay. So what I end up with is a products table that lists exactly the information that that index page is going to need. It doesn't have to join a bunch of tables. I have it just completely not normalized you know it's Hmm. it's just flat it's exactly like what i'm going to need in the app so that my when i go to read i have i could use a simple read model maybe you know it's active record maybe it's something else like a data mapper maybe i'm just doing an sql query and getting back the fields Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter i could store that data in mongo in redis as a flat file in mysql i could store anywhere and then that application that has to read back that index can read from that exact source. It reads from the not necessarily the one authoritative MySQL database you have for everything in your app. Mm-hmm. It reads from whatever happens to be the best for it at that moment. I have like a thousand yeah, questions. Yeah, no, I mean I can I can ramble on forever. Do you do you want to ask questions? Yeah, yeah. So so that that I think that was where my brain has been going this whole time is trying to figure out what is the level of caching? Because like if, if every single time you had to access product number five, you had to run through the whole event store for product number five, that would be crazy and non-performance. So, so what you just what I heard you just saying, and I want to play it back to you to make sure that, that I'm following it right, is we've got some kind of, let's call it a cache, even though it's not necessarily a cache, but it essentially is denormalizing the, the information out to the specific, and let's, let's not even address that yet. First, let's say it's exactly the same table structure that you would have had if you'd done this without event sourcing. Just let's say that's how you chose to do it. So all of your 100 tables, whatever. At that point, you basically have two structures. One is this event sourcing structure, which is the log. And two, which is your traditional structure that could be your normal website, but it's read-only and it's only ever written by the actions of this event sourcing thing. So at, at any point, it's kind of like a, your event sourcing is like migrations for data, where basically you delete all the data out of your end result tables. And then at any point, you can just replay the whole event sourcing and it'll refill them in exactly the correct way. So if you, that step, step one for me is just saying, 
you're no longer ever allowed to write to your to keep your tables exactly the same way are but you're never allowed to write to them you can only ever write write to the event store and then it's the only thing that's allowed to write to them so that's kind of step one for me and my phone and i know that you never end up there but that that makes sense so far right yeah, there's a couple, um, there's a couple specifics there. And mm-hmm. that is you have a listener listening to every event that's hitting the store. And mm-hmm. that's what's creating what we call projections. And okay. those projections are those tables you're talking about. Okay. So, um, it's not the spe- necessarily the event store, although there are event stores that have the ability to create projections like Greg's Young, Greg Young's, uh, event store, which is kind of the, kind of the hotness right now. Uh, it's at geteventstore.com. And it, that's really kind of hot because it does a lot of really interesting things. Like you can write projections in JavaScript in right. the web UI and have them usable. You can uh, do these crazy temporal queries. Like Greg Young had this example. If somebody tweets about Starbucks and then f- within the next five minutes, they tweet and they use the word happy. But surrounding that tweet happy in before 10 minutes or after 10 minutes, if they said the word coffee, then that's when we want to know. So you can have really arbitrary temporal type queries using this this technique, right? And I think that makes sense. And I, 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 in my head, even though I said the event store does the, you know, kind of the filling of the end result databases, I, I really, I was imagining something attached to the event store that, so a listener makes t- total sense. Um, and, and so that I'm following that. And I think the second place we got to there was, but not only are you changing what's able to do the rights but you're also changing your mentality of what the end databases look like so that's a, so i'm imagining you know if we're talking about denormalizing things i, I imagine i've got a um some kind of join let's say i'm building a, i do a lot of crm so i'm building a join and i've got a person and a person has many gifts associated with them um and sometimes I need a person with a list of all their gifts. And sometimes I need a list of all the gifts in the table. And so you can imagine the types of joins we're doing there. In this world that we're talking about, would I have two completely separate caches of that? Two, one, one view that's all the gifts, one view that is each person with their gifts. And it's kind of like almost like a kind of embedded Mongo type thing. Or am I not following that part correctly? There's a lot of ways to approach this, right? And it's going to vary depending on what you're trying to do. In my mind, you start out with just using the event store. And when you have a need for a read, my personal understanding of, you know, maybe what a best practice might be is to actually create these projections for your specific read use cases. Hmm. So I would have one projection per use case. And with the idea that when you create this projection, it's able to be um, directly kind of coupled to the UI. The projections are the UI, right, of the system. Hmm. So when some page loads up, it's not reading the event store. It's reading from projections only. So to me, the projections and the UI are one and the same. So if I need to have a specific projection for this uh, index of products, then I would create one just for that. Now, if I had multiple UI locations that we're going to use the same projection, here's what I then lose. I lose the ability to change one of the UI things easily, modify the projections, and not have to worry about how it affects the other one. So that to me is a a very big concern. That's one reason why everybody's kind of getting into microservices, et cetera, lately. It's because if we actually take decoupling and make it more extreme, then suddenly we are not dipping our uh, fingers in every little piece of the application when we have to change one thing. If I can say that I need to change the product index, I can change the UI and I can create a new projection that shows the new UI. I could have two separate projections, the old UI and the new UI running side by side. I can have Mm -hmm. the mobile app using one UI, the web app using another. I could have two in the web app, one's for being developed right now and one's live and who knows what, it doesn't matter. I can create any number of these things and really what's the, the performance penalty? If I ever get into a situation where I have a performance penalty, I just add another machine or add another process or, you know, all this stuff can go into Redis or Mongo because it's like we used to, when, when no SQL databases were hitting my, my group of people, we were all like, I don't understand. I can't really use this. It's not transactionally safe. I didn't realize at this moment that I had, there are so many ways that we could be using these technologies that, um, I just didn't have the context to understand. So with event sourcing, since we can just run these projections whenever we want to, it doesn't matter if our Mongo store goes down. Yeah. Nobody cares because yeah. if, uh, we have another one already up or or we bring a new one up, right? That's, that's so unique because 
So one of the things that I've been complaining to a lot of CMS manufacturers, because, um, you know, again, like I said, we do CRMs, we do CMS, we do a lot of things where we're enabling the end client to manage their own data. And and so we're, of course, looking at out-of-the-box CM, CRMs and our CMSs all we can. And the biggest frustration I have with them is that they don't make it easy to migrate their database schemas easily. And so you, you have this really, really fragile database that doesn't just contain the data uh, it also contains all the schema because, you know, CMSs allow you, a lot of CMSs allow you to change the schema in the UI, which means their schema is being represented, the unique schema to each app is being represented in data. Um, and so I'm like, you guys got to give us migrations here. So what I'm hearing you talking about, I mean, and again, I, I may be just kind of overexcited about this, but is not only do we have, so so if you've got like this whole kind of, let's say the Amazon machine image and the ability to quickly spin up and down, you know, servers, right? And we've all really excited. We can spin up and down servers in terms of our need and, you know, cloud infrastructure gives us a lot of flexibility there. And then migrations makes it very easy for us to spin up and down, you know, individual pieces of database schema in that world, right? And Git and all that kind of stuff allows us to deploy our code in these ways. So more and more and more, we get to the point where our just, our stuff can very quickly be added or removed versus the old world where it was kind of like you have this single very fragile database and a single very fragile set of code and you're you know you ftp'd it up and if you lost it it was gone if you lost your database it was gone you know and it sounds to me like this is kind of taking that a little bit further into the data realm where my data i mean is this of course if you lose your event store you lose everything but like even even that and I actually just recorded a five minute geek show about how much I dislike Mongo because <laughs> I don't trust it. And because of all these different things and, and what you just said totally makes sense. And what I'm hearing there is Mongo is just another cache Mongo. And that's, and that's, I, I said at the beginning, okay, I'm going to call it a cache, but it's not really, but it kind of is because what you're saying is, I mean, we do this all the time, right? We, we take a really difficult and uh, query that is slow and everything like that. And we do the joins and we put in the associations and the relationships. We get them to the point we want which is a projection in this world, and then we just throw it into memcache, right? And then we, we access that memcache, and we have some kind of logic that's making sure that that cache, you know, uh, expires itself at a certain amount of time. And what you're saying is we're making that not a first-class citizen, but a higher-class citizen, where it's really like no, the, the projection is, the, it's not just kind of like some incidental aspect of the uh, performance. It actually is kind of like a core part of how you're thinking about it, which is make a projection for what you want, call it what it is, and then operate on that. So that's very interesting to me. Yeah, you can just create a projection for a report. And as events come in, the report modifies itself. So when you hit download, you're downloading what data is already static in a table in a format that you intend to be the outcome. Hmm. So you click the button and it downloads as fast as downloading a text file directly from the server because right. it's already calculated and your report's calculated in real time. Well, near real time, right? Because this is where you get yeah. that whole eventual consistency thing. Yeah. Um, so how this, this may be crazy, but just popped in my head. How does, how do definition of a projection, um, how does that similar or different from I'm trying to remember what they call it in Microsoft SQL? It's like saved views or whatever. Do you know what I'm talking about? Right. So you're talking about either views or stored procedures. Yes. Stored procs. Yeah. The built-in behaviors into the database. Yeah. Right. And I know what you're talking about isn't built into the database, but is it kind of a similar concept or? So it's all code driven, right? So you have code that says, this is how the projection works. Right. And I, I have maybe this setup code that sets up schema or something like that. Maybe I want it to be a MySQL table, right? My projection, which is mm -hmm. uh, right. Pretty common. Like what I would imagine a lot of projections would be, you know, for, for a lot of people in a lot of situations. But so it creates the table and then it just, it says, these are the events that I care about. And it listens to all of those events. When it gets one event, it's programmed to run a query. And then when it hits another event, it's programmed to run a query. Right. So you, they can be more involved. Um, so you can have behavior and logic in there based on current state that I want you to behave in this way. Hmm. Um, but a lot of times if, if it's just like a product, product price was changed, then it would just update a single field for that product uh, in that projection. And so just be an update, update products, set price equal wherever, where ID equals whatever. And that would be how that, that projection is updated because it's listening to the events. It's programmed what to do with each event that it cares about. Hmm. And so, um, you can change a projection to care about more events. 
you can change a projection to care about more events, even after those events have already been firing for a year. That's where and my brain is you, going right now. How does that happen? Do you replay the whole thing? Or? Yeah, you just replay the whole projection and then you oh get a new gosh. report. So when the thing, okay, th this is really actually an important aspect. If you were to make an application where you needed an audit log mm -hmm. and you actually, you said, okay, we're going to log all, we're going to log when a user does this and does that and does this, you can make reports out of that. And those can be really extremely useful, but it's possible for you to have features on your application that do not fire those those audit hooks that do not mm -hmm. create events. It's impossible in an event source application to modify the state without firing events. Therefore, your events are far more thorough and cover all of the cases that yeah. you perceive that because you can't modify that state without firing events. So if you need new ways of modifying the state, we need the application to do this or be aware of that, then you have to fire those events in order to do it. Consequently, you can make reports about events that you've never even th thought of making reports about and then have those reports go back as far as those events yeah. go back. When the client comes back and says, oh, that audit log that we really need that sends out every, you know, every Monday or whatever, uh, it needs to have X and Y. You can say, okay, great. We can get X and Y ongoing, right? But we can't get it for the past. With this, it's like, okay, cool. We'll add a new, we'll add a new whatever to our projection and then we'll rerun it and then you'll have it. That's, that's kind of nuts. The nice thing is it's for free too, because when I go and I'm, I need to make a new, uh, audit report or a new report, I might have to actually code and change the application, add new database tables about storing that behavior, whatever I need to do. And that takes up my time. And it's, it's actually, I'm just thinking about now and it makes me like really unhappy just to think about having to do that all the time. Yeah. Um, and so mixed with the fact that it's a lot of work to do and you can miss that you're going to miss things and you're going to miss data. Um, event sourcing is just, uh, a lot better in those in those ways because you are going to have this new kind of data that you never really had without event sourcing. I really want to drive this point in. If you're gathering events, that's great. But if you're not drawing from your events as the single source of truth, mm -hmm. then you are not gathering all events. It's so error prone. So, so I, you know me, I'm big on rapid rapid application development, and I create a new SaaS like every month. And I've got literally three that I'm four that I'm working on right now, uh, three of which that are actually SaaSs that I expect Titan will probably be making money off of and selling within the next couple of months. So this is a the ability to kind of judge any exciting new technology about how can I use it today and how can I make money off of it today. Um, is always at the forefront of my mind. So I'm I'm building one. I'm building a CRM right now that is um it's a target market that I have a ton of relationship with, and I have a single CRM that serves them already. Um, but I'm building a new CRM for them. And like I said, it needs to be able to have audit logs. I've already built in the basics. So I'm kind of what I'm doing right now is I'm kind of spiking a prototype so that I can take it to the people in this world and say, you have all oh, I've done validation with you guys in terms of the conversations. I've interviewed them. I've come up with them ideas. I've sent people wireframes. It's now time to show them a prototype. Um, I've got maybe a couple dozen hours to create a prototype, walk over to them and say, I want you to click through it. I want you to try it out. And then I'm basically just trying to validate, is this worth us throwing hundreds of hours at and actually really building a product? Um, it'd be really cool you know, to do event sourcing as a, as an eventual foundation of this application. Cause I've, you know, like I told you about, there's, there's this aspect of like, I need to be able to do audit logs. I know that later I'm going to want more audit logs that alone, uh, nothing else that alone. And also the ability to scale based on what we just talked about with this kind of like kind of projection as cash kind of idea. I'm very interested in that. But when I look at event sourcing, I say that seems like it's in, it's in active development uh, as, as a, and of course, it, I'm uh, actually the, the guy next door to me is a, um, computer science professor at the university of Florida. So I just vaguely mentioned that he's like, well, I've never heard that term, but that means X and Y, and it's been around for 40 years. And I'm like, well, I don't think anybody's claiming that they in invented this idea of, you know, last year or something like that. But I do think that still that like versus, you know, using relational, my relational MySQL databases accessed by Laravel and Eloquent, which is proven written about i have a ton of experience with if i were to jump into event sourcing right now i feel like it's kind of like new ground new territory could you talk to me a little about what does like not mvp but what let's just say i'm building this thing and i got a couple dozen hours what does it look like for me to do an app in my world using event sourcing 
First of all, I would say if you're using Laravel and, for example, Eloquent, uh, an active record, you can still use those tools and you just use them to read from your projections and to render your templates and to do all mm -hmm. that stuff. So, so your application, front end application design is, is still the way that you want it to be. But your write models probably aren't going to be eloquent models. Um, right. so then you have this CQRS, uh, concept where your writes and reads are actually separate classes. What you can do is you can have, your Laravel application, take the user input, uh, feed it into a domain, which triggers events and goes into your event store. And then for the reads, when you're actually making the, the front end views, you just query eloquent models that are, instead of representing a member, instead of representing a product, they now represent a projection, a record in a projection, right? Mm -hmm. So you can actually, um, you don't, you don't have to use those tools. You can just use SQL or whatever. But um, all those tools kind of stay the same. You don't throw those out of your stack. Now, when it comes down to event sourcing and, you know, what it takes to implement, there there are some various things that you can just, you can do all of it yourself at home, write it all yourself. So if you have, um, let's say you use SQLite, mm -hmm. you could make an SQLite event store that is not going to, you know, probably be performant enough for everything, but it's enough to get you in development. And what happens is you just do your domain modeling like the DDD way. Like DDD and event sourcing go just so well together. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to tell people what they have to do or whatever because I really, I mean, I don't know. I'm A lot of this is really new to me and I'm putting a lot of my effort into this. But if you think about modeling your domain separately and not doing this like procedural approach of, of application development, then your your models can fire these events, which get stored into the event store. So the way that kind of lo uh, looks is if you have a command and a handler, right? And this is kind of just the accepted pattern for, for firing commands. So you have commands and queries. So you have the command and its register member. And the register member handler, what it's going to do is it's going to say, I need a new member model. So, um, you know, you say, give me a new member model because you call like maybe a static factory method on the member mm -hmm. uh, class, member register. Mm -hmm. And then you feed in the information that's necessary, the member's password, maybe the member's email, the member's name. And then what that does is it gives you back a member object that's loaded with the event inside of it. Member was registered. Mm -hmm. Now, when you pass it into your member repository, you're done. The handler finishes. The rest of the request finishes. In the repository, it pulls out the events that have been raised in that entity and it throws them in the event store. And then it does, doesn't do anything else because mm -hmm. what's the point of doing anything else? All it cares about is the events. Um, so that part is really straightforward. You're just doing the same stuff you're already doing, except for now you're not persisting entities to this database. Right. And so let's, so. So I have the, you know, 10 hours of work prototype in this thing up and running right now. So it's got a uh, active record uh, model for a member. It's got an active record model for an event. And those are the two main things that we're tracking right now. So basically this is for folks who run kind of clubs and organizations, um, usually at a school or something like that. So they throw events, they have members, and they're going to do a lot of stuff around those. And, and one of the things is that a member can attend an event. So I've got a member which is an eloquent class. I've got event, which is an eloquent class. Um, so what I'm, what I would do step one is I would create non-eloquent versions of each of those. I'd create a member, uh, member, you know, popo or whatever. I'd create an event popo. I'd create a repository for each. And then I'd create a command for create, update, delete, um, for each of those. Um, you know, uh, the, this whole kind of like cruddy being bad to me, I'm still, I'm like, I am reading a member. I am deleting a member. So I'm not even going to worry about that too much. And then I've got a repository that in, and in, in, I'm not hundred percent sure about exactly where the, the event lives in terms of injecting the event, in, but whatever, but I've got the repository. So this repository, am I just directly creating the PHP structure for events, you know, myself, or is there you know, is there a framework or a package or a library that you guys are, you know, using when you're working with this, at least in the PHP world? So you're talking about domain events? No, uh, sorry. In terms of the actual, like, the creating, saving the event store. Okay, right. So what gets stored in the event store are domain events. Right. So is it, is it, are you just purely using whatever your database access, access layer is to just create a thing that represents the event? You know what I mean? Oh, right. Um, so if I have a member was registered event, Mm -hmm. inside it's going to have the member ID 
the email, the name, the password, uh, whatever I needed to create that member. Right. And that event is going to have all that data. And then it's just being sent uh, via like a REST, REST call to the event store. Okay. So that's the concrete aspect of how it's getting sent there. So is your event store living external to your internal database structure? Uh, yes. Okay. That's, I'm, I'm not following that part. So can you walk me through that? The event store, like you can use Postgres or MySQL as an event store. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. I like Greg Young's event store. Uh, it's in version three, major version three. And was so, that the uh, get event store.com that you're talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't realize that that was not only, a, it was not just a, a way of thinking about it. That's actually like a storage. It's mechanism. a software product. Ah. It's an open, free software product. And uh, it's optimized for exactly this task. Okay. So what is it based on? He wrote it in JavaScript. They they wrote it in JavaScript. So you've got a node server running somewhere in your architecture yeah, that's just exactly. just holding that up. It opens up in a, a, a REST API. And every time your repository gets one of those events, member was created event, it basically generates, you got like an SDK. He probably has an SDK for a yeah. PHP SDK. So you basically pass that event into the SDK. It fires off the thing and then you're done. That's right. Got it. Okay. So if if I'm taking this application I'm working on, which I, I, I'm always like, how much should I reveal? It's called Memory. It's a CRM that's targeting clubs and organizations. Um, so if I were to go into my prototype today, I would be A, extracting out popos for my, my um, popos repositories and commands for all of my things. Because again, right now they're just spiked in eloquent and active record. Um, B, I would be get setting up an install of Greg Young's event store um, on a local node thing. And then uh, C, I would set it up so that uh, all of the commands, uh, rather than hitting any local database work, they would be inside of the repository. They would be sending out, using the SDK to send out the event to the event store. And then D, what, what about the read side? What kind of local code infrastructure am I writing to, to, to f- facilitate the creation of the projections from Greg Young's event store? Okay, so it's important to know that, so your models, your read models are based on your needs. Uh, so yeah. if you choose to go like probably the easier way, which I think is completely recommendable, which is just to have a MySQL table for each projection in the same MySQL table or something like that, mm-hmm. and then move them out as, as needed. Right. You, if, you know, if you can tell your, your ORM, Hey, read from this table and represent a record in this table, right. then you have not necessarily an event active record model. Right. You might have an in, in event index active record model or an event detail page active record model or who knows what. These are based on use cases, not the core entities themselves, right? I probably should have given you an example that wasn't event, so we're not crossing event and event <laughs> around here. No, this is a perfect, like Von Vernon says, this is a perfect example of why you should not suffix your events with the word event. Yeah, that's a good point. So I, I guess is, and I, I don't want to get too far into the concrete, but that's where my mind lives. So is, am I writing in Greg Young's event store? Am I writing JavaScript to basically generate projections from my, uh, from my event store? That, I think that's the part I'm missing. What, where am I defining how the projections are created? Right. So you might have, um, code that listens or, uh, polls periodically. There's, there's different ways to do it. Greg, uh, Greg Young's event store, I think uses Atom feeds as okay. a primary mechanism of, of conveying events. So you go and you ask for the head of the feed and then you can go back to the first page using the links built in, kind of like a hypermedia approach mm-hmm. and page through it, inject, receiving all of these events. Um, up until you get to the front page. And then from there, you kind of just query the front page and make sure that, you know, you have the latest events or whatever. So what is the structure? So, I mean, and I, I just want to be super concrete just so I can follow it. I, I want to write a projection that gives me all of my members and embedded within that, it gives a list of every event they've ever attended. That's so that, so we're imagining maybe a Mongo style, you know, let's say I even do it in Mongo. So it's actually literally, uh, member with a list of their list of their events embedded as a document in them, right? So that's one of my projections. At some point, I want a list of members. Each member has all their events in them. I need to define that as a projection. Am I defining it in a PHP thing somewhere? And then I, in PHP, I'm saying, go, however, get the list of events. And then I'm basically defining like a translation from event to projection. And what am I writing that in? 
Yeah. So PHP is a fine example. Um, you get what new events are coming in, or you, let's just say you go all the way to the beginning and get your first events and you set up your schema, you, um, and then you just loop through each of the events and each event needs to run some amount of code with probably like an update or an insert or a delete mm-hmm. uh, on the, on the table. And then once you're caught up, well, that means that projection's caught up, right? And that's as up to date as we can be. Maybe some events haven't come in yet, but that's where you don't, you get eventual consistency. It doesn't have to be up to, up to date all the time, usually. Sometimes you need that. And so you would kind of approach this a little different, yeah. a little differently, uh, to be able to get that. But most of the time, you don't need real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, like so, Google stuff is, is not real time. No, nothing's, yeah. you know, really real time. So what I'm, what I'm hearing here is, uh, in my very specific use case, I've got a listener using the event store SDK that gets the events. I iterate over the events as if it's basically a collection or an array. And I say, for each event, do this. And in this, I'm going to create my own manual. It's not using some library or anything like that. I'm going to create my own set of instructions for when you get this event, this is what you should do. And I'm basically building like a data translation layer like in there that says, based on this, I want you to do this, 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 and this. And this, 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 and this is going to be a longer list the more projections I have. And then in this particular use case, I'll use Eloquent, but I could use Doctrine or whatever, but I'll use Eloquent and I'll actually perform database writes to my projections. And then later I've got read models for all of my Eloquent tables that I've just, or my uh, MySQL tables I created. Yeah, basically however you want to do the manipulations, that's fine. Uh, if you want to use a tool like Eloquent to actually manipulate the database to update the projections, that's perfectly doable, right? Uh, I think it's really important that your each projection is kind of a standalone encapsulated thing so mm-hmm. that other other things can't necessarily dip into those projections and your projections can be multiple database tables it could be a document store so in the case of you want to go through your members show a members page maybe and have all of the events they've been to mm-hmm. you might actually have multiple tables there in yeah. one projection right yeah. and then you can just do um a like a query the events based on the member id and yeah. then you have those all the data, uh, data you need for those events. Maybe no more, maybe no less. You know, just however yeah. you want to have it set up. Um, but that is definitely written in either PHP or any other language ever. Or um, your event store might support the ability to do that. For example, I think you can write JavaScript to update in-memory structures mm-hmm. with the event store. And I think that this is the case. At least this is the case with Seneca JS, where you can tell it, I want these to be stored in Mongo, or I want this data to be stored in MySQL or something like that. And it kind of just does it. Yeah. But it, like it kind of does this auto ORM thing mm-hmm. where it just maps the data to whatever the story is. And that's what I was is. wondering. Is there kind of like a magical thing somewhere? It's because and, what I, what I want to know is like, we, we got the abstracts, right? How does this work? But in concrete, how much of this is just do it yourself? And if, and if it's do it yourself, then my next question would be, do you have any examples? And how much of this is, oh yeah, there's a system built for that. So kind of what I'm hearing is it's, it's do it yourself up to the event store, Greg Young event store. And I, I know he's not the only one, but we'll just use that. It's do it yourself up until the event store um, SDK to save it. And then we got a listener using the SDK, comes back out, and then it's do it yourself again in terms of generating, at least in this particular world, in terms of generating your projections uh, from those events. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of writing everything myself. And I know. so I like it. In, in my first event sourcing, I, did, I made an event sourcing in Scala package, which is how I kind of like learned how all this stuff goes together. And I have that on GitHub and it's not what I would call, uh, I don't think people should necessarily learn from it, but I, I learned a tremendous amount from, yeah. from making it. Um, I, I think that writing your own event store is a good idea of, until you have the ideas figured out and then you should switch to a better one. I think that writing all of your own projections, all of your own everything is the best idea because it's just not that hard. If you don't understand enough to be able to write it, you don't understand enough to be able to use it. So it's 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 maybe even the qualifier of whether or not you should continue to to start building an application because it's it's very simple stuff. The the moving pieces are a lot like an event store. In in my example, I have it store in memory. It's like a hash map. Mm-hmm. So for each of these IDs, it stores an event. Right. And then um, it's that's that's it. And so I have a a command that triggers some domain interaction like member register member. Then um, I have the domain model member that fires an event. Then I have the event store that receives the event. 
So that's like the command, the domain model, and the event store, I think, and the domain event. So there's mm-hmm. four four classes there, right? And then when it comes to projections, you're listening for the, the, the behaviors you want. And if you're using something like Scala, then you're just doing a pattern match or something like that on the events. Right. Or... Um, something along those lines. If you're from like a functional world, I just kind of use left fold for everything, uh, which means I take a list of all of the events and I just execute one after another after another onto the state of the, the projection. And this is the same behavior in the entity as well, where you just loop through each event and do the necessary updates. But at that point in time, once you have that stuff written, well, you already have your up-to-date projections and you already have your event store, so you can actually go and code against that stuff. And there's very few actual moving pieces. Now, as you get more sophisticated, you're going to need more sophisticated tools. But if you want to get started, I I suggest writing it all yourself and then go into some IRC channel somewhere and say, hey, go blow my code to smithereens and see what people have to say. If you want to come to the Dev Discussions IRC channel on Freenode, we'd be happy to do that and, and participate in that discussion. But I, I really think it's actually not that much to get started. Now, would I would I commit to doing it in a client project without having done it on the side? No. Right. And that's what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm, if I'm saying I got 30, minute, 30 hours left to prototype this thing, it's going to take me 30 hours just to get that up and running. Yeah. Well, event store, like if you want to, I'm sorry, uh, if you want to use event store, then you're going to have to learn that. And that's not a small thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I think it's actually really valuable to be able to say like, this is because, you know, like anytime something like this comes out, there's this tendency for folks to just say, oh, well, if you're doing and we talk about this a lot, right? If you're doing it right, you're clearly using X pattern. If you're doing it right, you must be using repositories. If you're doing it right, you must be using, you know, commands or CQRs or whatever else it ends up being. And so folks just tend to say like, well, that's the new hot thing. So that means I must use it everywhere. Right. And so and anytime something like this comes up, I say, OK, well, like what what is the you know, the right place to use it. And how do we battle the, oh, well, event sourcing is the new cool thing. Therefore, I must use it in every one of my apps now, right? So like, what is the conversation we have about, you know, how to do that well? So I think uh, what I appreciate is like, there's a part of me that says, oh man, I'm building memory. It needs some of the things that event sources provide us. Why don't I just throw it in there? And I'm either going to do a terrible job and cram it in somewhere it doesn't fit, or I'm going to spend basically 80 hours getting event sourcing up and running. The prototype will never happen. It doesn't meet my business needs and it ends up failing, right? So there's all these kind of things for us to consider when we're, when we're looking at these new technologies. So I don't know where I was going with that, but. No, I mean, I think it's true. I think the, what event sourcing has to offer is undeniably attractive. Yeah. To have a list of these events from, from the beginning that you would not have had otherwise. Like I can look at any of my apps that do this whole state static st- or this global. It's essentially like global state in a, mm-hmm. in a database somewhere that somebody can go in and modify and it's not my application. So my business rules aren't actually being encapsulated. Yeah. I have to through principle not allow that kind of modification. But what if I need to do data migration? I write these scripts that custom do custom data migration. Maybe they don't go through the domain models. Who knows what? With event sourcing, you, your events are immutable. They just, once they happen, they happen. And you don't change them. And that's just that. What you can change are your projections. And you can change those anytime you want to. If you have a bug in one of them, you just fix it, rerun all your stuff. So it's really attractive to be able to have all these events, to be able to create these projections to get the performance benefit out of it. To me, it reduces the amount of code in the individual models, which I really like. When you're working with the same model for reads and writes, you end up with two completely different use cases in one model. Mm-hmm. And it makes your it makes your code so much harder to work with. If you actually look look at an interface for let's say you just let's just say you look at the the public interface of a a member of an application that's been around for a while. So there's a bunch of features and behavior on it, right? Right. If you divide that up into like stuff that's necessary for reads and stuff that's necessary for writes, all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense to look at these interfaces and say, yeah, those are more cohesive yeah, because they're using the same dependencies, that kind of stuff. They have the same, you know, they just go together. Yeah. So I almost feel like having these unified models, uh, it's, it's always felt a little off, right? Like if I'm making controllers, like in a model view controller way, I have these, these posts, these gets yeah. and... And they tend to use different dependencies I inject into the constructor. So the constructor has all these dependencies. 
But if I were to divide that controller into multiple controllers, I can keep the dependencies very reasonable. So I went through this whole effort to make one controller per exact use case so I could see what that was like. And it turned out it was really awful to work with. But <laughs> when it comes to the the models, like the controllers, the problem there was that I had too much stuff going on the controller. Well, I, I, I solved that. And so now my controller is this, this simple list of, you know, web interactions. Like here's some web validation that's specifically useful for the web. And then it goes and fires off some command. And that's the extent of the code in the controller. It's It's simple. It's easy. But these models, they grow and grow and grow, mm-hmm. and they have to do all kinds of things. But when you say, okay, what is what do I need from reads? Well, I need to be given the read model, and I need the read model to have the necessary fields. And if I can actually work with that, then that's really easy. You, you, don't, have, you, run, you don't run the risk of somebody like taking that model in, making changes, and just calling save the save method on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just this model has like almost no real behavior except for it might have methods for formatting something for the correct currencies or, or who right. knows what, stuff like that that's read right. that you end up finding on a lot of your models because you needed it. Right. Right. But you only needed it in, in the read context. And I mean, and I, I the value of CQRS in general, I, I totally get it. I mean, I've actually worked with a client, did consulting recently where they were seeing all the values of CQRS for, for sharding, right? You got a single, you know, single master database for, for writing that's accessed only by the admin users or whatever. And then you're sharding out, you know, many, 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 many duplicate slaves that are read only. Then, you know, CQRS gives you a lot more. So I totally get that. I, I think, and I'm sorry I interrupted you. One of the things that, that was popping in my head I didn't want to miss was, as we've been talking internally at Titan about a lot of these conversations, and you know that Adam Watham works with us, and he's he's pretty vocal in a lot of these areas. One of the questions we have is, at what point are we we going so far in not trusting the end user of our code that we're basically like trying to put a prison around them and make sure they don't screw up? And we've you know we've had conversations internally, like for example, like about do we create a complete duplicate of our, an active record model in an active rec- record system just so that we can be passing around a version of it that doesn't have save, right? And we've seen people actually say, how do I disable save? How do I disable, you know, like, and so part of the conversation comes up for me that pops in my head is I would love for us, not just today, but like in general, as we talk, like, what is, how do we figure out the line between wanting to have enforcement of schema, enforcement of behavior, enforcement of domain rules? How do we balance that with not being this 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 feared kind of security state where you think all your developers are idiots. And I feel like there, I I really get both sides, and I don't know. And of course, we always should be keeping things in balance, but I don't know where the line is there. Um, I'm going to challenge the assumption that we're protecting ourselves or something from our users. I'm going to challenge that and say, I see this as a side effect and not a purpose. Mm-hmm. And what I'm going to say is, everything that we do is actually modeling. We're modeling something all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So when, when we talk about modeling, a lot of times we're talking about domain modeling because the domain is the part that matters. Right. If how we model the HTTP kernel, if it gets the job done, nobody cares. Um, it's not going to, we can change it later and nobody will care. It, it's just inconsequential. It's just an implementation detail, but the, the domain is more than just an implementation detail. A domain is core to what we want out of the entire system. Mm-hmm. Right. If we can write an application without having to encode business logic and business rules, that's fine. Applications are like that all the time. Um, they don't need to use the domain model. Domain model is a pattern that's talked about in the Martin Fowler book, Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture. And the reason it, it kind of came up is that if we write an application where when this request gets posted, we do all of the step-by-step instructions, then there's no there's no way of really understanding the model in that context. You have to read everything and it's all very procedural and it's hard to comprehend. It's hard to make changes to. And in some cases, it's completely impossible to turn an idea into software using those techniques because the ideas are too complex. Mm-hmm. So the, the concept of a domain model, you know, emerges and it's like, okay, let's only model those complexities and then have layers outside that interact with those in order to, you know, it's like the domain model is then the source of truth. Yeah. Now, in my thinking, everything that we do is a model, whether it's the domain, whether it's modeling UI interactions or anything else. I think of all programming as modeling one thing or another. Now, what I think the term elegance comes in is when you have a model that most correctly represents what you're trying to model, that most 
accurately represents the the idea and also it's being able to be done most effectively using the 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 tools available so it's like at this crossroads of knowing the programming language and knowing how to really communicate the the ideas of the model using the programming language effectively that to me is the definition of coding elegance right hmm. so if we are creating software in an elegant way in which we're effectively using the language to directly represent the model and if we understand that everything that we're coding is the formalization of some thought that we're modeling we can make the code that directly matches what we're working with in the real world so then the better our understanding of how these systems work the better our software and the more easily we can change our software because if you if your code is modeled in some completely incorrect way and you need to change something in the code to fit the business even though the business thinks about the concepts completely differently you're having to do this translation layer and it's this thing where simple conceptual changes in the business result in horrific reworking of software in the code mm -hmm. so i don't think that we should ever use the arguments uh you're never actually going to change your orm so let's not abstract it away i don't think we should ever actually use arguments like we're doing all of this work to try to protect us i think heavy type safety is very valuable in a lot of circumstances um i think that you can make really interesting type systems that keep you from ever being able to put together objects in in a uh wrong way resulting in really kind of rapid development but i think mm -hmm. that there are consequences negative consequences to all these things and your job is to understand both sides enough to be able to choose you know how how to put things together but i don't feel like a lot of these arguments that come up are fair i think that um they're they end up feeling to me reactionary i see a lot of people doing these things I don't like it for my situation and I have a list of negatives and this list of negatives must be true for everyone. And you've heard me say this before, right? It it what frustrates me most and I'm most and I'm I'm very intentionally not specifically talking about this situation, but all of these types of situations where there's reactionary back and forths, we tend most to respond not to the person we're talking to um in a you know a re more reactionary debate, but some straw man or some some idea whether or not somewhat true somewhat not true whatever we have in our head and sometimes that idea in our head uh we're reading often we're reading their the, the idea in our head their words and their intentions when the person we're talking to hasn't said it so so they're saying things and they're saying things and we're saying yeah but but the but is purely based and and i feel like sometimes conversations never get to the point of realizing that's going on and even when they do it often takes forever so for me anytime you've got one of these debates i'm like that's cool what does that have to do with what I just said? Because I think that you just responded to some other thing that's happening in your head. And so I think often what a good discussion of these things, re reactionary or not, the, the foundation has to be us understanding who are you actually talking to? What are you actually responding to? Because I think, I think you heard me say a single word. And this is, this happens in politics and that religion, whatever. You heard me say a single word that, that put me in a category for you. And you're responding to that whole category, whether I agree with aspects or not, whether, you know, you and I may agree on 90% of it. And I've seen this happen now specifically in the type hinting conversation a lot people that people would put at very opposite ends of the type hinting conversation you know they may be on twitter or on podcasts or whatever and then they actually talk and it turns out they agree with 98 percent of it but the the one person felt like they had to address the 98 percent that this other person already agrees isn't an issue and it turns out there may be one or two syntactical differences but really they actually all feel the same way. So I think one of the things for us as as folks who are having these conversations is is identify not even even if uh attacking a big thing or defending a big thing uh you know maybe makes you your conversation listen to more try to identify what are the pieces you actually are bothered by and attack just those pieces and then allow other folks to say yeah i agree with those pieces or not and i'll make my own decisions or whatever so i think for me what works the best is to understand that 15 years ago when i was using certain techniques people were already had an understanding that's far beyond what i have now yeah. And so whatever I thought, whatever I was being uh, political about when it comes to craftsmanship or anything else, it was valid for me, but it was invalid for many other people. So what, what crosses my mind is if I, no matter what I say now, if I say this is, is the truth, then in a year I'm going to be kicking myself and trying to remove this video from the internet because I'm embarrassed um, about how yeah. I behaved about that specific topic. 
So now I just want to talk about trade-offs and just accept the fact that there are as many mental models as there are people and everybody's situation on top of that is different. So just because you and I might work on web apps as our primary occupation doesn't mean that we work on the similar kind of apps or have similar backgrounds or work with similar teams or mm -hmm. anything. There is an infinite amount of things that could make my knowledge completely invalid in your situation. And how am I supposed to gauge that? So I think we're most best served by analyzing trade-offs and being really excited about everything that could benefit us. I've said this a few times, but I've been a real huge, uh, I've studied TDD, uh, BDD, and DDD, and these were all really important to me. I'm not sitting around using coding with TDD. I'm just not. Um, I went through the process of learning how to do it. I used it for a while. And I, sw I say I would do it again in a heartbeat because of the things it taught me, the way it changed me. I want mm -hmm. to study these techniques not to be an evangelist, but to be internally changed. I'm not really even that concerned with how I end up using these in the future or if I'm going to. I just have faith that if I keep pursuing these really interesting things, that I'm yeah. going to be given the one thing that actually matters more perspective. And that's going to empower me no matter what I do. So I, th I think that there's a lot of good um, benefit to have from debates that people are having. I just don't want to debate something simple and miss learning out on something sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I love the attitude of everything I'm saying right now. I, I, I'm, I'm confident that I'm going to feel at least a little bit differently in six months. And I think uh, first time I was starting to podcast, I'm like, well, a good podcast, there's an element of conversation. And then there's also an element of opinion. You know, if you just kind of, if you never state any opinions, then it's not even interesting to listen to. So you've got to have some element of opinion, but with some element of like understanding that you got, you, got, you hold your own opinions and then know that they're just in the space of, you know, of there's a million different reasons why there's a million different things that I don't know. And I, I think it's fun to just be able to both say, Hey, here's how I'm thinking about it. And you could say something right now that could totally blow that out of the water, totally shift my way of thinking of it. And that's fine. That doesn't mean I, I can't talk. It just it's means better. we're going to talk and way. we're all growing. And yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to act like we know everything, but, uh, we can still keep, keep learning and having a conversation. I agree with all the things you said <laughs> for now. So did you want to talk about any th other thing having to do with event sourcing? Do you think we kind of uh, covered enough? I think I think that I have 10 million other things I want to talk about, but probably not today. But in terms of event sourcing, I feel like that was a really fantastic both introduction and and just kind of get some of the, the conceptual hurdles out of the way for me. So, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, definitely go and just do it for fun because yeah. it's interesting. And there's a lot of source code. Uh, there's there's a project called Candidate where the C is a Q, actually. And okay. um, Bo Simonson, do you know how to pronounce his name? I've always said it Simonson. Simonson, yeah. I don't actually know what it is. So. so he apparently coded this thing up, and it's a great CQRS event sourcing example uh, written in PHP. So great. Um, that's really cool. There's a lot of, of examples out there. I really like doing it with Scala because it has the object functional approach. And mm -hmm. so event sourcing with Scala is just doing a left fold over all of your events until you get the correct aggregate spat out. And it's just this beautifully elegant thing. So I have a repository on my GitHub, github.com slash Sean McCool, and it's called Scala Event Sourcing. It's easy to find. So if you want to look at that, that's cool. And, you, you know, feel free to work on that with me because for me, it's just a learner project. And I don't care about, you know, who's doing what to it. So let's, let's have fun. I guess to me, I want to assert two strong opinions. One, we should all be looking at event sourcing if only to gain the idea that the, the typical way we store data, mapping our needs into this one source and then mapping in a completely different way our needs out of that source, that has translation problems and it causes us trouble. And here's an example of how we can do it differently. So that opens our minds a little bit to the kinds of things that we take for granted and that the fact that there are solutions out there that don't have those same problems. So the more we learn about those, the more we can choose one that actually suits our needs instead of just using the same hammer for every nail. And my second opinion is every developer, no matter what they're doing, benefits from studying functional programming. I believe that functional programming is uh, really hot and really important right now because it's if you go through the process of really learning object-oriented programming, you your mind transforms and you learn all of these new ways of thinking and it's a lot of effort and 
I think that you get the same kind of benefits from learning functional programming, except for you can apply these concepts in any code you use anywhere. So if you're using PHP or you're using Scala or whatever, you're going to benefit directly. Your perspective is going to be modified. So I think we should all be looking at functional programming, if nothing else, right now. I think uh, maybe a topic for us another day is to talk about... Uh... Uh, I know that a lot of folks in my position were primarily focused on a single language. So, you know, I, I write some Ruby, maintain a Rails app, I write some PHP, I write JavaScript and stuff, but I feel like one of the things that I need space for in my life is, uh, I don't know if I want to say more powerful, but a language in the space of Pythons and Go's and Scala's and stuff like that, where it's just a different set of needs than the t traditional kind of web stack. And again, this next door neighbor guy of mine, who's a computer science professor, he's a Scala geek and has been talking to me about it for a while. So I think in the future, I want to hear more from you about that. Cause I think, uh, and I, I don't want to dilute your opinion, but most of what you said there, basically when the word Scala happened and then you're starting talking about left folds that I can't even tell you how much that went over my head. So I think that's a, that's a, that's another talk for us another day. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a great topic for a talk and something that needs to be getting more attention. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks for letting me rant about stuff with you. Oh my gosh. This is fantastic. I mean, I've been wanting to ask you this for ages, so I love this, this that this gave us that opportunity. All right. Well, uh, I think that we're done then. All right. Well, thanks, man. Good to talk to you.